0: Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank.
1: There are some Christian churches that encourage people to understand and follow the New Testament only. They believe the Old Testament and the law is obsolete because the Jews rejected Jesus. So they believe that the church has now replaced the Jews in God's eyes because we're in an age of grace. It is true that John 1, 17 tells us the law was given through Moses and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. But now that we have Jesus Christ, does that disregard 80% of God's word in the Bible, which is what the Old Testament is? No, absolutely not. Because the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, according to Galatians 3.24. And we need a tutor, so we don't just throw it away. The law teaches us about God, his workings, our need for a Savior, his prophecies pointing to the Messiah, virtually in every book in the Old Testament. The law lays out the very tenets of how we're to live. Jesus simply expounded on those tenets to negate that foundation would be like negating your entire life before marriage. So you're kind of getting rid of the old and you're going on with the new, but it's the old in our lives that made us who we are. And it's the Old Testament who gives the foundation of everything we need to know about the Messiah. So today we're gonna understand how Jesus calls us to live in this age of grace, using the law as his foundation. I'm Debbie Blank, looking forward to continuing our study in Matthew 5, which is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, so we can see his teachings to his disciples.
0: And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. What we call the Old Testament today was the entirety of Scripture for Jesus and his followers and was always revered as the Word of God. So it is important to note in our second program on the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus did not come to do away with the law. On the contrary, he came to fulfill it. But what does it mean to truly fulfill the law as God gave it? Jesus gives examples that go far beyond the surface obedience that their leaders had been teaching or practicing. The depth of obedience Jesus describes puzzled the disciples and perhaps puzzles some of us as well. But it ultimately points them and all of us to the
1: need for a perfect Savior and the
0: blessedness of new life in the kingdom of God.
1: That's why Jesus' new teachings that he's giving to his disciples are simply expounding on the truths of Scripture from the Old Testament. Consider 2 Timothy 3.16, a familiar passage that says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Well, when Paul wrote that, all Scripture was the Old Testament. Because the New Testament had not yet been codified, and it hadn't all even been written yet. So we know now that all Scripture is the Old and New Testament. But when he was saying that, he was validating the importance of the Old Testament to New Testament believers. That's why Jesus says in Matthew five seventeen, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus is validating the importance of the Old Testament. He's not doing away with it. He's just expounding on it, on how we live in this age of grace. He didn't come to abolish but to fulfill because, as I mentioned, the whole Old Testament prophesies about the coming Messiah. And when he came, he would fulfill all those prophecies and give us that direction of living under grace according to the law. He goes on to say in verse 18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now what that really means is not any jot or tittle would pass away from the law. In the Hebrew language, it has a lot of little, what you might say are commas or apostrophes, these little marks, and they all mean something. What Jesus is saying is not one of those little marks can pass away until it is accomplished, until everything in this word of God is fulfilled, nothing, the Old Testament, the law, nothing can be taken away. He even goes on to expound in verse 19, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, those three verses make it absolutely clear That the law is not only important, but it must be followed, it must be seen as the Word of God, and that no one can annul any of these commandments or say that they're not of validity because they are. I've heard the relationship between the Old Testament and the
0: New Testament and how interrelated they are put this way. In the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed, but in the New Testament, the Old Testament
1: is revealed. That's a great way of saying that. We need them both hand in hand, just like we need our lives before we are married with our lives after we are married because it's all of who we are. And the word of God is all of who God is. And again, if we left out the Old Testament, we'd miss 80% of who God is and what His promises were. And we'd miss seeing the fulfillment of those promises in this day and age. Now, because the scribes and the Pharisees focused on the law to an extent that they ignored god and they ignored a lot of what the law taught they just tried to follow every single one of the rules jesus told his disciples they had to be different than that he tells them in matthew 5:20, i say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and pharisees you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven their righteousness needed to be in their heart, not just outwardly, which is what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. When Jesus talks here about the law, he's saying we need to follow the law, but we need to expand on it with our hearts to see all that God intended with each one of these commandments or teachings from the law. So he starts in verse 21 and goes through the rest of the chapter using a couple of interesting phrases. He says, you have heard, which is the law. You have heard, you were taught what the law says. And then he says what the law is. Then he goes on to say, but I say. So he's expounding on how we can love our neighbor by following the law, which is more than just the letter of the law. It's the heart and the spirit of the law. So keep in mind, we're going to hear six of these. You have heard, that's the law, but I say, that's grace under Jesus Christ. So let's begin with the first one. Verse 21, you have heard that the ancients are told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That's pretty strong language. But don't we look at that sixth commandment and say, well, but I never murdered anybody, so I haven't committed that sin. I don't have to worry about that. Jesus is saying a lot more than that here. He's saying if you harm your brother in any way, in your actions, in your word, in your slander, in your anger, anger here means to spit that shows complete contempt for somebody. If we do any of that, we are murdering them. We need not to let that anger cause us to be angry towards people, to consider them good for nothing, which is what raka is. But instead, we need to be honorable to people, not murdering their character or their actions or their attitude, not just their physical life.
0: When you look at the phrases and you said there are going to be six of them, this being the first one, you have heard, but I say. A cursory reading of that would make somebody think that there's going to be a contrast in the law here, and Jesus is coming up with something entirely new. Well, he's coming up with something new, but he's coming up with something deeper. He does not say, now it's okay to go out and kill. He's not negating that commandment whatsoever. In fact, he's going so much deeper. He's going to the heart of what causes murder. So there are so many evils that come from a murderous heart, not just the actual killing of a person. The idea here is to change that heart from the basic level. When we get to verse 23, it says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. I thought that was kind of stunning because if we actually were obedient to that, I wonder how many people would make it to church in the morning if we kept short accounts like that. But yet that's so important that we aren't to let the sun go down on our anger. We're to forgive. It shows the heart of God that he wants you to have a pure heart before you come and sacrifice to him.
1: Here he's talking about expounding on the letter of the law to the heart. And the heart is to be reconciled with man, to forgive man. We're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians five eighteen and 19, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's given to us the word of reconciliation. He wants us to be reconciled with one another. And it's real easy to say, you know, they deserve it or they hurt me or make an excuse. I will tell you that when I've had a bad relationship in the past with someone, I've prayed about it and I've prayed for them because I want to be open and I want them to be open to reconciliation. But I can't force it to happen. It has to come in God's timing and his way. And he has always brought it about. And he's done amazing things in how he's mended those relationships. And he'll do that with us if we will listen to him. Part of this reconciliation is forgiveness. You said, leave your offering at the altar and go be reconciled. Your brother means forgive him. That doesn't mean that you go tell him what he did and that it was wrong and you've forgiven him now. It means you go in a humble heart and ask his forgiveness, whatever part you've had in it. We will see as we get to chapter six that God tells us in the Our Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we're told even later, if you forgive men for their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. We have a responsibility to forgive others so God will forgive us. He goes on in that same passage in Matthew 5:25 and 26 to give a different example. He says, "Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown in prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent." Here he's given an example of reconciling with someone on the way to court. That's just a more exacting example of building relationships and being reconciled with one another so that there are not severe consequences. Those severe consequences could be anything because we know that irreconcilable differences can cause bitterness in our lives. And that bitterness can, well, the Bible says springing up causes a well of defilement. We don't want that to happen. Jesus is making it very clear that part of not murdering someone is is being reconciled to them, forgiving them of their trespasses, being right with them, and being right with God. Well, the second one that we see is in verse 27. It says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Well, that's quite a change. We're used to adultery being only the actual act of adultery not the thought. So why would Jesus say, if you even think about adultery, you sinned? Because the action that people take to commit adultery starts in the heart. If it doesn't start there or if it's squelched there, there's no sin. When I think of myself, most of my sins are in my attitude because they start in my heart. If I have a bad attitude or a grumbly attitude, that's an attitude. And if I fester it, it becomes sin. If I say no, it doesn't. So it's not just the outward action that's a sin, it's the attitude of the heart. Romans 6.12 says, Thanks be to God that although you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. We must be obedient from the heart in order to follow God's commands, both Old Testament and New Testament.
0: And when I read Job thirty one one. It says, I have made a covenant with my eyes, how then could I gaze at a virgin? And what I thought of were two people, two politicians of all things. I thought of President Jimmy Carter, and I thought of Vice President Pence, who both had admitted to being careful about being with other women or thinking about other women to the extent that God really requires us to do, and yet the world made fun of them. It was a matter of ridicule, but truly they were taking this seriously.
1: And God takes this so seriously that he gives a consequence here in verses 29 and 30. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of your parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. That's pretty severe, but the point he's making there is that we need to get rid of anything that would cause us to stumble. Anything. Even if we have to cut off our arm or leg, because the stumbling comes from our heart, and we need to stop it at its core. If you are looking at someone and you have a lust for them, then stop that relationship. Don't see them anymore. Do whatever you have to do to cut it off. Now the next point that he makes in verses 31 and 32, it was said, Or you have heard from the Old Testament, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. In Deuteronomy 24, God made a provision that if men chose to divorce their wives for any reason at all, they were to give her this certificate of dismissal so that she would not be in a position of begging or out on the streets on her own, but would have an actual certificate that would give her some validity. It's not that God supported divorce, but he knew that men were doing it anyway, so he allowed for that certificate of divorce. Jesus goes on to say, though, but I say to you, so this is Jesus' heart building on the law, that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's a pretty strong term because God tells us throughout the Word of God that adultery is a sin. Here we see the one reason for divorce biblically is unchastity. That's pornea in the Greek, harlotry, having a sexual relationship outside of marriage. That's the only biblical reason for divorce. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, the potential of a person leaving a spouse, that could be another reason for divorce. So even though God allowed for a certificate of divorce, Jesus is expounding to say no divorce unless the marriage bed has been defiled.
0: When Jesus talks about the commandments having to do with murder and the commandments having to do with adultery, those are both preserving sanctity preserving the sanctity of life, and preserving the sanctity of marriage. So that's why those are taken so seriously.
1: Very seriously in God's eyes. Jesus is expounding on the law here to let us see that it's not just the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law, which goes much deeper. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. In God's eyes, that covenant is never to be separated. As a matter of fact, the covenant is made through a sexual bond that is never to be shared with anyone else. That is God's heart for marriage. We have desecrated that in our culture today, but we need to get back to it because Jesus is making it very clear that that's important to him. Now he goes on in the fifth example of the law and how it needs to be expounded upon. It comes from verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients are told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vow to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. In other words, don't make an oath for any reason or to anybody or anything. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond that is of evil. So the law says that we're not to make any false vows, always fulfilling your vow, because when you do, you're making a vow and you're fulfilling it to the Lord first before you fulfill it to someone else. But because people make vows all the time and don't fulfill them, He's saying that what we need to do is not make vows, but simply let your word be your bond. Whatever you say, you don't say, well, I swear to God I'm going to do this, or I swear on a stack of Bibles. What you say is simply what you do. Your word is your bond, your truth. People can trust in you for what you say, because as a believer in Jesus Christ, he is the truth and everything we say is to be the truth. A vow is a vow, whether it's a statement or swearing on a stack of Bibles. We're still making a statement that shows our truth and honoring to God, because every statement really does point to God.
0: When you were kids, did you make your friends pinky swear to something? Because when we were kids, either had to swear or you had to pinky swear that something was true, because otherwise they might be lying, they might be telling a story. To ascertain that it was true, you had to go through that little process. Does that mean that we're lying otherwise then or that people can't trust our word? So it's so important to have people know that when you say yes, it means yes. When you say no, it means no.
1: Oftentimes we'll say, well, let's go out to a ball game this weekend to our kids. And then the weekend comes and you've forgotten what you said. Or you get busy doing something else you want to do. And you say, well, we'll do it another time. You made a statement to your child and they believed you. To not follow through on that statement is a false vow. So you're not only giving a false vow to your children, you're teaching your children that they can't trust you. And you're also giving them a bad impression of God because you're indicating that perhaps you can't trust God. When we say something, we must do it. Obviously, if something comes up and you get sick or there's an accident, you know, things happen in life. But then we have to make restitution when something is said and it's not followed through with. That's very important because it determines our character. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Our character must be above reproach. So our word must be our bond. Going on now to number five. You have heard in Matthew five thirty-eight that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Well, the content here in verse eight, an eye for an eye is a law of retaliation in the Old Testament. Exodus twenty one twenty three and 24 lays that out, that if there's any injury, they were to have a penalty of an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth or hand for hand or foot or foot and goes through several of those things. But Jesus is saying, don't take out retaliation on other people. Instead, show them love and respect. He uses the example of turn the other cheek. Well, who wants to turn the other cheek when we're slapped falsely? We haven't done anything wrong. We don't want to give him the other cheek. We want to fight back. But the attitude of Christ is to love your neighbor. He goes on to say, if someone wants your shirt, give him your cloak also. I've had people, when I admire a ring or a pin or something that they have on, they will actually take it off and give it to me. And I will say, no, 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 you can't do that. I, no, I don't want it. I just appreciate it, that it's yours and it's beautiful. But they're actually willing to do that because they have the heart of christ in that case i'm not forcing them to take off their shirt or give it to me but they want it because it's the spirit of love now the one that gets me is verse 41 when it says whoever forces you to go one mile go with him too the lie back then was if you passed a soldier on the road he could require you to carry his baggage for him for one mile and jesus says don't just do what you have to do go above and beyond what the law requires to show your care and your love for that person instead of retaliating against them. That's a whole different mindset. It's one we could really use in this day and age because we want to get even. We want to sue. We want to do something if somebody harms us. Jesus tells us to do just the opposite. Is that our attitude?
0: So there is cultural context to some of these things that are pretty shocking and pretty puzzling when we read them. And you just explained one of those. It reminds me of a story of a man who had an enemy that he didn't really want to have, but read what he was supposed to do and he was supposed to do good to his enemies. And so he decided to make a positive out of it and to think of all kinds of good things that he could do for this enemy. And it really turned things around where the enemy was terribly puzzled and didn't know what was going on. It became a source of joy for the giver and curiosity enough from the enemy that their relationship changed.
1: As a follower of Jesus Christ, we are to look like Jesus. We are to act like Jesus. And all of these statements that he's making show us that we don't just follow the letter of the law, we go deeper to the intent of the law of the heart, to change ourselves and therefore be more like Jesus Christ. And he ends the last one in Matthew 5:43 by saying, you have heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor. Well, we know that from the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the Old Testament says, and hate your enemy. The idea is that that's how people treated other people. That was the law of retaliation that we just read. But Jesus said, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's kind of what you were talking about. Did you catch that? Love your enemies and pray for them. If we will pray for those who are enemies, God will do amazing things. First in our hearts, but also in their hearts and in the relationship. And remember, it's all about reconciliation. First, reconciling our relationships and then reconciling people to God so going back to that, Jesus first says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why are we loving our enemies and praying for them? Because they're sons of the Father. We are examples of Jesus Christ in this world. In Matthew 5:46, he says, But if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? I think of that and think, well, I love my kids. I'll do anything for them. That's easy to do. But what about loving your enemies and doing anything for them? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Do you know that when it talks about loving your enemies and praying for them, That was a new teaching. They never found that in the Old Testament. But God says that that's what we're to do because that is the epitome of love. Do you go beyond the letter of the law or do you only follow what you have to in order to be right with God or what you think is right with God? Do you do the bare minimum or do you go beyond the letter of the law to have the heart of the law, the heart of Jesus, the heart to look like and act like Jesus? That's what all of these six examples are about, to get us doing more and thinking for ways that we can be like Jesus to other people. Because remember, the two commandments he gave us are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what these verses entail, is loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus calls us to go above and beyond our religion or above and beyond the law because he wants our righteousness to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, not just the outward appearance, but the hidden person of the heart, which is the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, according to 1 Peter chapter 3. Ask yourself, what's your heart? What's your attitude? How do you live? How do you treat other people? Are you an example of Jesus, or are you living your life on your own terms?